Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Why It Matters. My name's Tracy Kronzak. I'm Director of Innovation here at Now It Matters, joined always by my co-host, Tim Lockie. Hi, thanks for joining. Wow, that's that it. was... That's all I'm doing. I didn't <laughs> yeah, have to but... go weird, but then, no. No, right, but, we wow, okay, but sometime. you just thanked me for... I was, I was thanking our listeners for joining. Oh. I was saying thanks for joining, as in the people listening. Oh, so, okay. Then right, you were we missing a word. It was like, hi, thanks for joining us. Because you looked oh, right yeah. at me and then you were like, hi, thanks for joining. I was like, no, no, <laughs> that's your intro. <laughs> Thank you for joining Tracy and Cheryl and all of our other listeners. Um, Thank you. I yeah. know that's, what is it, over-nuanced. Uh, Sidebar for all our listeners, today's the day after I've gotten my third COVID vaccination. My left arm is in so much pain. It's ridiculous. So you're going to get some good gems out of me today, I think. Um, uh, I am so pleased to introduce our guest today. Uh, I've had the privilege of association and working and friendship and commiseration and mentorship and uh, so many amazing stories with her. Uh, it is my honor and joy to welcome Cheryl Poro to our show today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And it's so funny, Tracy, because as you were talking, I couldn't help but remember where, you know, I knew you from events and whatnot, but what had happened was we were walking down 24th Street one morning and discovered we were neighbors. We were. Right. And then we yes. started to do our Phil's at 24th and Folsom meetups and whatever happened at Phil's stayed in Phil's. Just like Vegas. <laughs> Just like Vegas. And that's where it all began. So that was, Wait, was so that fun. back when Phil was still working at Phil's? Yes. yes. I would still see Phil at Phil's. Yes. Oh my I would gosh. still see Phil. Phil was like the James Bond of the of the mission district he was just so cool with his fedora yeah he so, was yeah, really cool. was, and he yeah. had okay so first of all they had this is phil's at the corner of 24th and mission in san francisco Folsom. cheryl Folsom. Folsom. that's right Folsom. sorry it was one over uh 24th and Folsom in san francisco cheryl and i each lived on opposite sides of bernal hill uh for a good long while i i moved there in early 2014, I think. And Phil's coffee, like that particular one was either the first or second one that they had ever it was opened. The first. It was the original. Yeah. 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 And they had all this crazy wall art that had Phil on it. And they had this entire off menu drink selection. And I still have somewhere buried deep in my Evernote, all of the off menu drinks I could order. <laughs> so I would like, I, you know, everybody else would be like, oh, can I get a latte? And I'd be like, oh, no, wait a minute. Hold on. I Can I get a crazy horse with double <laughs> shots and a little bit of extra milk? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. And people would be like, what did you just order? And I'd be like, mm, something. So, <laughs> so good. Awesome. And I have very fond memories of those times. Me too. But yeah, now I think my job is to talk a little bit about who I am, right? Yes. Tell us who you are. Uh, besides <laughs> that person that would meet up with Tracy at Phil's on a fairly regular basis. <laughs> Let's see. Who am I? So aside from being a technologist, uh, which I am, I am also a San Franciscan. Uh, didn't originate here. I originated outside of Boston and migrated west um, when I was young. Been here for well over two decades. So definitely feel like a San Franciscan and I'm raising a San Franciscan more importantly. So oh my mama, goodness. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and it's so exciting like to have raising a 14 year old in San Francisco who's, you know, who now can like take Muni on her own and just basically the city is her playground, which was a very different experience than I had. I grew up in the burbs um, and was always bored. So that is not an issue for my daughter. Uh, so yeah technologist, um, city dweller, nature lover, mom. I'm constantly trying to win the mom of the year award. So that's my goal every, like every day I want to get mom of the year award. So 
you know, my daughter gets home, I would have already crafted a snack for her that, you know, like maybe a matcha chia pudding, something like that. You know, I know. Like and Cheryl real. does mean crafted. Wow. These photos yeah. occasionally wind up on the social media. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so that's just me. And, you know, uh, throughout my career, I've been in tech for, like I said, a couple of decades. And I worked at companies like Amazon. I worked at uh, companies like Salesforce, spent 13 years there. And I'm currently at a company called Curve Health. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, I think the last time that you and I spoke was in Tahoe at Tahoe Dreamin, a Tahoe Dreamin event, either right after we had gone skiing or right before or something like that. Um, and so you were at Salesforce at that point, and then I, I, and I think others would love to know what has, what has transpired between then and now at Curve Health. Fantastic. I have a phone making a bunch of noise. I'm going to throw it in another room. It's one of my work phones. It's one of my work phones. Um, so gosh, what has, so remind me of where, where, what has transpired since Tahoe Dreamin? Since Tahoe yeah, Dreamin. I think it was think maybe like even the Tahoe Dreamin where you and I presented. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes it that was. Would be it. That would right. be it. That would be it. That would be it. Yeah, so uh, let's see. Professionally, definitely a lot of changes professionally since then. Uh, so probably I'm trying to think in 2018, I was probably a couple of years into my time at salesforce.org. So 13 years total with uh, Salesforce first eight and a half with the company, last four and a half with salesforce.org, leading product in technology for, yeah, the .org. Uh, so, you know, had this amazing opportunity to work with all these amazing folks like yourselves in the uh, in the ecosystem. And that was definitely a highlight for me during my time. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because as things were going, there was a little bit of this you know, four and a half years, really essentially with the same role. Yeah, I was growing the team, we we're launching new products, we we're doing all this cool stuff, but there was a little bit of like, what's next, you know? And in and then sometimes, you know, it's almost too good. Like, oh, I gotta shake it up a little bit. Like things are too good, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's time to shake it up. Or what's next? Or what's the challenge? And and um, there was, you know, I just I started to get this little. Uh, you know, it's like the openness to having the conversation because I wasn't really overtly looking at that time. I had taken a sabbatical, uh, which was great. I wanted to take some time one summer and just spend it with my daughter while she was still young and still wanted to hang out with me. Um, and I think it was just enough of that opening, you know, having that time away from the team and the ecosystem and that little bit of a voice in my head saying, you know, are you both like challenged into are you squelching opportunity for people in your team because you won't move, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was a, like a dual kind of voice in my head. Um, and I think because of all those circumstances, I was sort of ripe for the picking and, you know, it was the right opportunity was kind of presented and I got, you know, excited about it and, and convinced to leave. So that was kind of what happened at that stage because I was having a pretty great run and, you know, I, loved what I was able to do and like love my team, especially and the entire team and the people I got to work with and the ecosystem. And, um, but yeah, just ended up moving. So uh, one of the things professionally that I was sort of eager to do, having been at a company for so long was do something completely new. Right. So I had been in that Salesforce world for so long and it was like the way I would describe it, it was like in my veins. Like I know that platform, you know, the first seven and a half years I worked on the platform. Right. So it was just like in my, my, it was my blood basically. And I want to do something very, very different and very new. Uh, and so when I joined Thrive Global as their CTO, it was the opportunity to start uh, a platform from scratch. So completely modern stra uh, stack from the get-go service serverless architecture, microservices based, like no JS API layer, react front end. Like it was what all the kids were using at the time. You know? so, that was part of it. it was like, oh, can I pull this off? I want to try to pull it off. Um, and that's what I get to do in the year that I was there. I built a team of 25. We built this platform and integrated, like we built an integration with Salesforce, definitely leveraged my relationships to pull that off. Ended up selling that to Salesforce, uh, which was cool. So yeah, that thrived. I didn't realize you wound up selling that to 
Salesforce. I didn't realize yeah, that was yeah. at the fate of it. I don't know if it's, yeah, yeah. There was some of uh, the well-being platform is uh, enabled by the Thrive Global platform, um, as well as to other companies too. So, you know, it was a cool experience. And um, and then eventually, uh, you know, I it wasn't, you know, I just was ready for a change. I actually took some time off. Um, and that's actually kind of pivotal, important, I think, in my journey, because I remember at the at that point, there was a lot going on in my mind around like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And this was pre-pandemic. So a lot of it had to do with, you know, really waking up to like climate disaster and climate change and just realizing that like, I am living a lifestyle that is out of line with my values. And it just hit me in such a palpable way at that time that literally I got to the, I just stopped everything. I, you know, stopped commuting, right? Cause I didn't have to, I was riding bikes everywhere. I was making all my own stuff. I was buying, you know, as much as I could waste free. Um, you know, I was pickling my own jalapenos, making my own deodorant, like you name it, I was doing it. And I just, I felt like I needed that time to um, do this complete 180 in my life as a reset so that I could come back to something that was more uh, aligned, like values aligned. So it was a, it was an exciting time. Um, uh, and I, you know, but also a challenging time because I wasn't working and I wasn't sure about what I wanted to do next in that moment, but I, I needed it. Like I needed that kind of time to process everything that was going on. And then the pandemic hit. So that was like, I've always said I was, I felt like I was a couple of months in advance of everyone because I had already completely, you know, sort of hit a wall um, and felt a little bit ready for it. You know, I was like, I had a lot of tools I had put in place and developed to kind of manage a lot of what was going on around my relationship to the status quo and relationship to how I was living, et cetera, that, you know, I felt kind of like ready in some ways for what happened with the pandemic. And, um, and then because of that, I actually, I was in the starting a job search, but I put that on pause. Like I was deep in with the company and I basically had to pull out um, in part because you know, my daughter was Zoom schooling. That was a lot to manage. Both my parents got COVID. That was a lot to manage. Um, and it felt really good to just be able to support everyone and not have to like get back to work. So I delayed my search uh, until after the summer as things started to settle down. And then I was ready. I was ready to find the next opportunity, ready to find something that was really aligned with what I care about uh, and then ended up where I'm at now with Herb Health. So that was kind of, it's both a little bit of a journey that's professional and personal and it's always intertwined for me. Like I can't separate the two. Life is much too complex to separate out personal and professional. I think what's really interesting in all of that, and I remember, um, so I, I was kind of also in a, in a very similar position before the pandemic started. Uh, I had left Salesforce for a job that I thought was going to be something I could be at for a while. And it kind of ended in a really bad way. Uh, and folks have heard bits and pieces of that and they will continue to. Uh, but the interesting part about that was, was I literally remember having coffee with you in like February of 2019. And we were both just feeling a little strung out is what I remember. And we were like, and the world just literally got over being on fire. Cause remember we had all those days in San <laughs> yes. Francisco where it was just the orange day. And then the, the smoke kept going and Trump and, and everything. And I just remember walking away being like, oh no, like if Cheryl's on the ropes, then like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Um, but what was really interesting was, you know, the, the, I had had another job offer ready to go on Friday, the 15th or no, it was Friday, the 13th of March, 2020. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and I was like, great, I'm going to go ski for a week. So I went to Montana and I remember telling you that Cheryl is like, well, there's this company I'm talking to and it's looking good. So keep your fingers crossed that came through. 
Uh, I went skiing in Montana and at the beginning of the week, it was like, there's this weird thing happening in China. And at the end of the week, it was like the whole world is yeah. shutting down. I was like, down. buy toilet paper now. <laughs> buy toilet paper, <laughs> stock up on meat, do whatever. And, and the last communication I had with the woman that owned that company on Friday the 13th was like, hey, this looks great. Can we like adjust these couple of things in the offer letter? Sure. He writes me back right away. She's like, sure. Like, uh, I'll just send you a revision on Monday and we'll go from there. <laughs> and Monday came and went and I was like, hi, where are you? And I, I will say that this is the difference between like people with integrity and people without integrity right here. She called me up by like Wednesday of that week and she was like, I can't predict anything anymore and I can't make job offers. And it's not about what we just negotiated. It's about the fact that I'm not even sure I'm going to have a business in two months. Uh, and we have stayed friends since, and it, she's a lovely human being has now gone through her second acquisition, but it's funny. What I also think about that time is right after that, we all just went into this long, dark tunnel, right? And that long, dark tunnel, by the way, connects to everything we were just talking about before we hit record. And that is, how did we do taking care of ourselves and what did this bring up for all of us regarding the way that we interact with the world? And I'm now finally reconnecting with folks after about 12 months or 14 months in this tunnel. But I mean, what were some of the lessons that we should be taking out of that? Because I want to use this as a segue into a lot of the things that you're currently working on now and a lot of the things that we were talking about why you are where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, because there's so much there, right? I mean, ultimately it's like, for me, it's all around health of people and planet and we can't ignore that stuff. Like if we ignore it, it's at our peril. And I remember, so just a funny little anecdote about that. Those early days of the pandemic was, I remember, even though I was no longer at Salesforce, I remember that Salesforce was going to have like a public sort of live session and Mark was going to speak. And I thought yeah. maybe he has the answers. Like someone's got to have the answers. And then, so I got on this, this, this session and it was very clear he did not have the answers and he was freaking the hell out you know yes i remember that <laughs> yeah. what was he saying like, oh, like i don't I have no idea he's like the world it's it's the world like you could mark is usually super poised yeah, and yeah, he's right. very scripted and he yeah. just that you could tell where it was just like there was no script he was just yeah. like i got to say something i have no idea what to say so I'm just going to talk. Yeah, exactly. And I saw it and it was really clear to me that while there's a lot that tech can do, you know, to facilitate things, it was not getting out of this out of the, getting us out of this situation. It just wasn't. And in fact, probably generally exacerbates the situation, right? So that yep. was an aha for me as someone who's been in technology forever. And really up until like the pandemic, it was like, all we were, were amazing, right? And like tech is going to save the world. And then it's like, oh, and now when we need, the world needs saving, oh, sorry, we can't, you know, we don't have an app for that, you know? <laughs> well, there is no app for saving the world, right? Like, yeah. and it was really funny seeing tech's response, right? Yeah. I was... I'll honestly say I was a little dismayed with Salesforce's response because they went immediately to like, we're going to create a new cloud and sell it to you to solve the world. And I was like, mm. <laughs> but like some other companies didn't really have any answers either. So, and then like Microsoft got into it with their employees around like working at home before they were like, oh no, everybody just works at home now. You know, Google struggled with this. So this is not like a ding against any one of them. It is to say that, everybody retreated to the motion that they know best, mm -hmm. but yeah. that motion that they know best that might've gotten them to March 13, 2020 isn't what we need now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're just sort of forced to rethink everything. And I do think that like all of these um, statements that were said as like absolute truths have been proven to not be right. And so now's the opportunity, right? And that, and it's in these disruptive moments that the, the there's the, where the opportunity for really changing the game exists, right? Uh, and that was a big reason, for example, why I ended up getting in, joining Curve Health 
you know, which brings telehealth to specific spaces of with um, really sort of sick patient population is because it was really hard to do that pre-pandemic, right? Like 2% of doctors use telehealth, like very few individuals got their their um, healthcare via technology, right? And then in overnight, now it's up to 86% of doctors have done telehealth. So it just changes the game. And of course, consumers are much more comfortable having visits over over telehealth where they didn't before. Uh, and that was was drawing me. I was like, I, I know that what is happening now is going to be the future. And there's this opportunity because everything that might've taken a decade to evolve has just happened like that. And I do think there's other places where there are opportunities to rethink our approaches in a way that is like better for people and better for planet. But fundamentally too, because it's, um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough because we, we touched on this a little bit. There's like the profit driven, growth driven agendas that can sometimes get in the way of achieving what's best for people and planet. But Well, if I recall, the insurance industry didn't even have a mechanism by which to adequately bill for telehealth. So that was one yeah. of the early hurdles. If I recall, it's like, Definitely. well, we don't consider a doctor appointment delivered over, over video valid. Yeah. That's, you know. that's very much so. true. And uh, yeah, there, you couldn't sort of reimburse outside of particular settings in for Medicare uh, telehealth. And so the company I joined had a press predecessor company that had to shut down for that very reason. And, and the founder, the founding team of that company had been, you know, on Capitol Hill, they actually helped put together this this thing called the Rush Act, it was reducing unnecessary senior hospitalizations. And then the government shut down, it was like January, 2019. So they didn't get to get it passed. But the, the thing that happened was as soon as the pandemic hit, like all of the thinking had been done, the, the infrastructure was there, they knew what they needed to do and they just kind of implemented it. Um, and then of course the, uh, what, you know, Curve sort of was reborn, the assets from the former company were kind of acquired and, and then, and then we got going. So yeah, it's just one story I think of many. Um, but I think about that from when I think about, you know, one of the things that was getting me as I left my role, um, that fall that I was talking about was I just remember, you know, when I would commute to the office, just seeing all these like masses of people, right? Like walking and biking and Ubering and munying and barding. And I'm like, where are we all going and why? <laughs> you know, like this doesn't add up or make sense to me anymore. Like so much kind of movement that is unnecessary in this day and age, but we just do it because it's like what we've always done, right? And I didn't, all of a sudden I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I just don't want to do it. And yeah. And that was my motivation was very much like just the, the sort of environmental stuff. But then, but then when the pandemic hit, we just saw too, it's like, it's all unnecessary. And I think everyone's sort of waking up to that. Like there's a time and place to get together. And I like to do that occasionally, but we don't, you know, a lot of us, at least in the work that we do as technologists, we don't need to be sitting next to each other. It's like ridiculous because I know for in my world with engineers, it's like even if they're in the office together, they just have like three monitors, headphones on, not making eye contact. Mm -hmm. And if they want to have a conversation with the colleagues sitting next to them, they do it via Slack. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or yeah, some I just other got a Gallup poll where it was like, you know, because Gallup, your opinion mm -hmm. counts. Um, did definitely put that in air quotes. Um they were actually saying like, well, what perks would you change your job for? And it was all that crap. It was like, yeah. do you want a coffee house? Do you want a gym? Do you want an on-site <laughs> everything? And I'm like, I have a gym. It's called my garage. I have a coffee house. It's called my like, you know, what a Chemex, you know, yeah. and I have like on-site therapy. It's called my dog, you know, <laughs> like I don't need to go to a workplace to replicate what I have at home. Yeah. Um, tell us more about, cause Curve is involved explicitly at end of life care. And we were talking a lot about how that connects to technology, bringing dignity. Uh, the, the quote that you said was technology is dignity for a lot of folks connect the dots for folks in terms of how that dignity gets represented and, and what you're solving 
in end of life care and why this is important to you? Gosh, it's so, um, we touched on this a little bit, right? And there's so much to it because there's like the, there is the culture in which we're in, right? That avoids conversations about sickness and death. (laughs) And I am like, absolutely guilty of that, which is partly why I'm like leaning into all of this right now, because to date, to date, it, you know, I, I, I don't live close to my family. I'm on the other coast. When stuff goes down, I'm typically not around, right? So I hear about it third hand and then like, that's always worked for me. <laughs> I don't want to be present oh, in wow. these moments. Wish yeah. I were there. We're out in California. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. Oh, I'm so <laughs> grateful for you. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. And to date, it's, you know, it, you know, fundamentally, it's like when I think about, you know, and my mom, for example, was in the ICU with COVID, right? For a week, thankfully got better and got out, but it became very real of like, if, if my parents were to get very sick, like typically when my mom is sick, I never hear about it until stuff's passed. Like they don't tell me anyway. And that's good. Right. Like the old me would be like, cool. Thanks for not letting me know. You know? <laughs> but I don't want to, uh, God, it's like, I don't want to drop the ball. Like fundamentally, I care about them a lot. They're like some of the most important people in my life. Right. And if they were to be in that place, I don't want to be absent from that. I want to be able to be there with like grace, dignity, courage to face it and be present. So that was like the motivator for me of like leaning into getting more comfortable. So there's the culture and absolutely. So for example, I participated in a couple of things over the past month. So one was like an IDEO hosted panel around the end of life experience. And one of the participants is this amazing, uh, a uh, doctor named Clarita, who's local actually, and we're hoping to meet up in person soon, uh, who is a palliative care, you know, specialist and trains doctors and providers and how to have these conversations because it's not natural, right? It's not like if our culture is to avoid <laughs> these conversations, even our doctors don't know how to have them, right? Um, and that was like an amazing experience to be with this group of people who are, you know, looking at sort of the end of life experience from different angles. Uh, and it was a real wake up for me, right? Um, just seeing that there's a lot of energy around it. And then the other thing I participated in was a conference around the use of psychedelics and end of life, again, hosted by MDs. Um, and there's a lot of research around that and how we can use psychedelics to kind of ease the transition. Uh, because so much of, you know, the way the system is set up, and especially in our, if you're deep in the healthcare space, it's like the fee-for-service world where, you know, every little thing you do to a patient, you can get reimbursed for, and that incentivizes a lot of stuff, and it incentivizes a lot of things that are unnecessary, and maybe not even what the patient wants. So if you combine the fact that, like, we don't know what the patient's wishes are, because no one knows how to talk to them about what their wishes are, right? Like, what do you really, how do you want your death, what do you want it to be like? So the way Clarissa talked about it was like, we spend so much time and energy thinking about how we want our babies to be born in like zero about how we want our loved ones to pass, pass through, right. To die. So how can, you know, and like death needs a new marketer, you know, it's basically what she was saying. (laughs) As you're talking about that, one of the things it makes me realize is that I think the healthcare system, I mean, I think of it this way too, is death is failure, a failure of sorts. Like yes. it, we did not, we failed to keep you alive or the doctor failed. So if someone dies, someone else is at fault or something's wrong. And, and I, I think that that's, it's interesting to think about death, not as failure, because what that does is it means that keeping people alive, you know, is success, no matter yeah. what the cost, no matter what their preference, keeping people yeah. alive is is success. And I feel like that actually erases any, you know, conversation that's possible around it. Yeah. Um, and and so. that's where there's like the, where you lose that dignity, right? Cause like right. how, what's important is as individuals, it's like, how do you want your life? Like what's important to you? So when you're having those discussions with a provider who's skilled and adept at having the discussion, it's like, what's important to you? Like if you're super passionate about 
food and the food you eat and you get to the point where you can no longer eat, do you still value your like life, right? Like, and these are hard things to talk about. Yeah. So there's the culture, the conversations, there's the, the infrastructure, right? That sort of doesn't support, although there is a shift towards like what's referred to as value-based care, which definitely is more supportive of having these conversations and doing less, right? Or at least doing what's aligned with the patient's wishes. And how do you do that at scale, right? Because like, as I was saying, if you're well, you know, if you are privileged and have a lot of resources, you can have a very, very specific kind of end of life experience. And there are, you know, lots of um, institutions out there that can, that can help with that, right? And it, but if you're not, you know, it can be very, very, very challenging. You can end up in, you know, in a nursing home that maybe is understaffed and maybe undersupported from a MD side, you don't have the opportunity to have those conversations and like the experience is going to be suboptimal and not dignified, right? So that's how we are bringing technology to scale it, right? So it's about the um, things like telehealth, like being, you know, you don't have to have a doctor, you know, in present in the building in order to have these visits. Um, and that saves a lot, right, of resources and the training um, that comes along with it. So we have like these goals of care modules that guide our providers and how to have the conversation. So that's sort of the work that Curve's doing is trying to bring that through technology to more individuals to try to bring more dignity to the end of life experience. And yes, we can save billions of dollars <laughs> for the US healthcare system of unnecessary emergency room visits and treatments and things like that, that shouldn't, that don't need to happen, right? That don't help with patient outcome or patient experience. They're just like done, you know, if that makes sense. Is there, oh, is yeah. there a concern that, um, that if you, if we got more comfortable with that conversation and if, if the goal that you know the the goal change to value of life is there a concern that insurance would be incentivized to see end of life happen sooner you know is would that be a concern as well or um is there so much fee for service that it's actually quite the opposite yeah, I mean, at this point, it's quite the opposite. I mean, we're just so it's so it's kind of in the beginning, and there's always um, there's always going to be a need to be able to kind of understand patient outcomes and and making sure you have superior patient care, and that you're not just maybe doing like in, engaging in like coercing a goals of care conversation that will end up with like minimal interventions, you know, that kind of thing. So it definitely, you know, it definitely relies on, on having providers with best intentions, right. To, um, to honor the lives in front of them, which I do think, you know, at least I come across a lot of those, especially in the value-based space, that's their goal and intention, right. Is to, um, to have a better patient experience, even if that means you're easing someone's transition, right, to, yep. to death in a way that's like less awful. It's funny, Tim, you are touching on one of the topics that I touched on in a public health class that I took back in grad school. Uh, and it was all around that idea of where the economic incentive is. And we were studying it from the angle of actually the economic incentive is from truly you know, keep people alive at all costs. And uh, the book that we were talking about right before we pressed record was How We Die by Sherwin Newland, who looks at death as an industry and says, we have drifted very far away from the idea that death is an organic experience and far towards the sort of keep people alive at all cost experience that the industry supports from an economic angle. What was interesting though, was that was also the 19, you know, it was years ago uh, when Dr. Kevorkian was making news. And, you know, there were a lot of discussions about how to create policy around right to death. And one of the perspectives was, we can't create policy around this in so much as we can create policy that says you're not going to be penalized 
for this. And that is the farthest that anyone has really thought it through because otherwise there is the fear that you raised around, are we economically incentivizing things in the other direction? Uh, but it was that book for our readers, please go read it. How We Die by Sherwin Newland. It changed my life. It made me a staunch right to die person. It immediately flipped the switch on my driver's license to DNR, which I've carried ever since. Uh, and it really talks deeply about the discomfort we have in our society around these issues and how we've created a whole industry to support our discomfort around these issues. Yeah. And it reminds me, I want to mention another book and I'm pulling it up so that I don't uh, get the title wrong, um, because this is definitely and, and now, and I want to pivot now to kind of the more positive angle because we've yeah, been like deep in, totally. deep in death. Um, but it's called The Worm at the Core by mm -hmm. Sheldon Solomon. And I'm just, I checked out the audiobook and I'm just like partway through. But so much, you know, because this is what gets to um, what I kind of want to touch on next because it's like my personal passion and how it sort of dovetails with my professional work. But there's so much of our behaviors that are somewhat in inexplicable that really just are rooted in fear of death, right? And so that, that was the kind of aha for me that I had was like, if I am so passionate about living a full, vibrant, long, wonderful life, how can I do that if I can't honor death, if I can't talk about death, if I can't confront death? And then there's, and there's also a another book about sort of from a Buddhist uh, standpoint, like, and no I'm, fear, I'm, no death by Thich Nhat Hang. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And, and others. So, so yes, I'm sort of leaning into that, but there's definitely this angle for me that's like very generative and, and positive and optimistic. And that I also am really passionate about um, the sort of lifespan health span movement. So I don't want to call it anti-aging because people think of like plastic surgery and these sorts of right. things, not that, um, but the real scientific work that's being done to essentially treat aging as a disease, right? Um, and then in the, the, the sort of illnesses that come along with it, cancer, diabetes, heart, you know, um, heart attacks, these sorts of things. Uh, and there's lots of folks that are kind of doing the research and talking about it. Um, one of my favorite is David Sinclair out of Harvard uh, and has a, a web website called lifespan.io. Um, so I am personally always experimenting on myself, not in like drastic ways, uh, but definitely adopting a lot of these um, habits and whether it's uh, the way I eat or the way I exercise or supplements I might take all kind of aligned around um, vitality, like maintaining vitality as I age. So I, I in part of that is because I turn 50 in a few weeks. Uh, and anytime I get to a milestone birthday, I start to get all worked up about um, anti-aging. And it's funny because there's this company that, that does something called the inside age. And you know, about a year and a half ago, I did my inside age or was it a year ago, I'd already been working on this stuff. And my inside age was only like a year younger. And I was very pissed off because I was like, I <laughs> <be> better. Um, <laughs> so I stood, I still had some markers that were kind of high and then I redid it. And now I'm like six years younger. So yeah, I'm just right. sort of checking in along the way. And and what's been so amazing is like, first of all, am I allowed to swear in your podcast? Oh, hell yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and what's kind of nuts is like through all this, like, you know, when you, when I talked to you that one, that February, right. In that coffee shop, yep. I remember in Bernal, I know, Glen Park. February, um, 2020 Glen Park. Yeah. I was yep. in a dark, dark place. Me and too. I, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, I really believe it's like being in these holes and climbing yourself out is what it's like, how you evolve, right? And climbing out of that and all the things I've been doing since uh, I've gotten to this place where I just feel fucking fantastic. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and I see, and it's one of those things where it's like, I see a lot of suffering around me, a lot of suffering that I think is somewhat unnecessary, but I get like, everyone has to go on their own journey. Right. And that was me. And I've been on this journey for a while. And every step of the way, I'm always looking for something new. Um, and I have setbacks, like I had that setback, right. And, and I had to kind of climb out of that, but it's just kind of amazing. And so 
these things that I do, you know, like I'm sure, for example, and it's like a rare day that I don't fit it in, but I'm sure to do like my mindfulness practice and breath work every day. I am lucky in that I got a house with a hot tub. So I do it in the hot tub. So there's an incentive there for me to do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a rare day. I'll miss it. So all I need is 20 minutes, 20 minutes, usually in the morning, get my coffee. It's nice and chilly, get in the hot tub, do all these things that 20 minutes. I always, I work out almost every day. Um, mm-hmm. yep. make time for that. And in that, like I came around to just years ago, knowing that every minute I work out, I get back five minutes and like energy in the rest of my day. So I never have a battle with myself around taking time away to work out. Cause I know it's going to like pay dividends, um, sleep, like focusing on sleep. And then the last thing I did, and you know, I don't want to necessarily be a proponent of any one way. Cause I think everyone's different. Uh, but I did the sort of experiment of going like fully vegan for a month and that just really was freaking amazing. Like I've never felt more well-nourished in my life. Um, and I combined that with intermittent fasting, which, you know, if you listen to these folks is another, is another big, uh, helpful thing with anti-aging and health span. Is that, was that recent? The, the vegan move? Yeah, it was, it was September, the month of September. Okay. I did yeah. like a wellness camp with this uh, group called One to One Tribe. They're great. Um, and it, it had a lot to it. It wasn't just the food, but the food was like the real revelation for me because I was trying to be vegan, but I was just like, the food was boring. It wasn't satisfying. I was always hungry. And so like inevitably at the end of the day, I was finding something processed or something or cheese, you know, <laughs> like something like that. So I really struggled to maintain it literally. And with this, uh, program, like I just discovered a really amazing food and recipes. And now, you know, I just feel really well nourished and really satisfied and like on fire, which has been fantastic. Um, and I make time, you know, I have to make time to prep food, right. To like cut up veggies and do all these things. And again, like I, I don't feel at all bad about it. Like there's always work to do. There's always a million things to do. I work at a seed stage startup, right? I have five jobs at that seed stage startup. I could work all day, every day and not be done my job, right? So at some point I need to say, this other stuff's important and we're gonna figure it out. Like we're gonna figure out how to make it work. And um, and I do think that all those minutes that I carve out for myself, I get a return on it because I have more energy. I have more creativity. You know, I, you know, I'm on fire basically. Right. Whereas when I'm not doing those things, I feel it. I'm like sluggish. I don't have the energy. I procrastinate. I want to watch more Netflix. I still like to watch Netflix. Don't get me wrong. Right, but well, <laughs> Hashtag no judgment there. I mean, shoot. I think what's super interesting about all this, Cheryl is, I mean, Honestly, to take it back to tech for a second, you know, one of the things that I observed about the IT kind of pantheon of approaches to worker retention was we're just going to recreate your life here so you don't ever have to leave. We're going to give you coffee houses. We're going to give you dry cleaners. We're going to give you showers. We're going to give you napping cubbies. We're going to give you everything. And it sounds really great on paper until you take a step back and realize that actually disconnects you from the world. And that's the desired outcome is because the more disconnected from the world you are, the harder you're going to work exactly in the place that you are. And I think what's fascinating is the culture of Silicon Valley is so opposite of everything that you've just articulated because it is so easy to find something you're passionate about and create and build. But at the same time, you know, you were talking about talent uh, that gets left behind in that approach. And, you know, you, you sound different and, you know, you, you go into a board meeting and you're like, what we all need to do is take space for ourselves. And that's not the approach that I think wins the pitch in so much as 
you know, we're just going to work ourselves to death to get this done. But yet look at everything that gets left behind in that culture and in that model, it leaves a life behind. And, and to your point, it leaves a family behind and it leaves yes. talent behind. That's exactly it. That's what like leaves family behind. Like I can't do it any other way. Right. And be, be the parent I want to be, be the daughter I want to be. And there are a lot of people in that position because caregiving isn't just being a parent, right? Um, at some point we end up with others that we have to take care of in our lives. And the fact that you have to choose between being great at your work and being great as your as a human is just such an unfortunate situation to put people in. And it in fact angers me <laughs> that yeah. is expected. And it does box out a bunch of folks and you see the impact of the pandemic for example on working moms right a lot have left the workforce um there's like the great resignation there are many many employees across many industries who are just like yeah no not doing it anymore like things have to change because we're not um you know people aren't washing machines and dryers and washer dryer combos. They're human beings. And I do believe that if they're, you know, especially in the kind of work we do, the more, the more you can show up in the rest of your life fully, the more you're going to be able to show up in, in, for your work in a way that's most effective. I, I, I feel very effective at, at my job. And I know my boss and my colleagues would say, that I'm very effective at my job, you know, the amount of stuff that I'm able to accomplish, um, you know, is, is pretty, there's a lot, it's a lot, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll admit. Um, and I think it's because of my approach. I believe it. And so I want that, and I want that for everyone. I want that for all, you know, everyone on our team. And I, I want everyone to be able to show up for their lives with the same amount of energy, right? There's such a fear of that. Isn't yeah, there? there is like just such a fear that um, you're going to take down all of the safeguards that keep people nose to the grindstone. And because of that, they're not they won't work hard, which is weird because I don't know anybody in tech who doesn't work hard. Yeah, except exactly. people who are fed up with the companies that they work yeah. for. Yeah, right. Like. That yeah. like people want to be engaged. They they yeah. desperately want to find work that is meaningful that they can engage in. So yeah, it's and they want to feel valued for it and they want to yep. feel like they can do it without having to sacrifice, you know, be you know, their the responsibilities they have at home and their passions and their, you know, anything else that 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 creates a full life. Because ultimately but the decision like, makers at the top on that. Yeah, have to they should confront that fear, yeah. right? And I feel like, well, I feel like the great resignation is finally yes. creating an alternative fear that is making it, uh, making the case for, you know, for Agreed. why you do this kind of thing. So um, Agreed. Agreed. it's just interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It is very interesting. And I do think it's a sort of a pretty seminal moment, right? Because it's, it's, yeah, it's just an unusual time we're in. And, and, um, yeah, and an opportunity. And you see a lot of companies sort of coming around uh, because they're, they see that they have to. And then the ones that don't yep. are, their employees are going to get poached. Yep. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm actively working on that on a regular basis. <laughs> Good. I've hired some amazing talent from companies that are demanding their employees come back to work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, come back yeah, to the office. That is guy. intensely clever. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I have, you know, I've had my own version of that particularly over the past 18 months or yeah, 18 months now and, and still going here because I, I was a firm believer in that idea that like you just show up and you work yourself to death and then someday that will be rewarded, except that doesn't actually work for anyone who isn't a white guy. Um, and it doesn't actually work for anybody who has thoughts and ideas that are bigger than the swim lane that they've been assigned to. And it doesn't work for when the whole world falls apart. And, you know, my primary care right now 
is we need to make it to the finish line so that our kids can get vaccinated because both of them are under 12. And there is not a single thing I wouldn't do to get to that finish line unscathed, right? So, you know, I mentioned I just had my third COVID shot. That's largely because that'll help like stave it off in case I'm exposed to it with the kids, right? You know, but in another life, the single most important thing was vice president in five years. And it's funny how that priority changed for all of us, really. Um, and people look at me now and they're like, well, you seem happy. And there are days, and Tim's going to hate this, there are days where I'm like, I don't know what I do, but I try to do it every day. Um, I don't know what I do, but I try to do it every day. I'm like, man, I'm just going to wake up and hustle and see what happens. Uh, but there are all innovation, right? Yeah. Yeah. We had a podcast where somebody was like, you have to give somebody a title of like director of innovation. You're doing it wrong. And I'm like, I know, (laughs) but their point was don't compartmentalize. Right. And, And that's the thing. It's like, you can't compartmentalize these things anymore. Um, and I think, you know, by, by making our lives less compartmentalized and having these hard discussions about these things, we all get better and we all show up for what we want to do. Uh, and God, you know, I sleep seven and a half to eight hours and 15 minutes a night. And I got to tell you, when I was working for big corporate entities, that was all the way down to four and a half, five hours. And oh, I have the data indeed. that proves it because I have the sleep app, Yeah, you know, for six years of history. Now. You, no, it drives you crazy. It literally drives you crazy. Not yeah. enough sleep will literally drive you crazy. Absolutely. So, In the moment. And then it has lasting yeah. effects too, right? If you keep doing that. And that's the main thing. It's like just looping it back into the part of the mm-hmm. earlier part of the conversation. When you talk to people at the end of their life, it's like their regrets aren't, you know, the the promotion they didn't get or the exit they didn't get. You know, it's it's the it's the real meaningful human connection that they might have not invested in you know, time with their families they didn't invest in. These these are the regrets people have. Um, I don't want to end up in that place of like, one, my body's falling apart, so I can't enjoy life when I'm retired, say, uh, and or having these sorts of existential regrets. Because I do think it's a it can be a false choice, at least for folks. I mean, I, got, I, I will acknowledge I am in a p- place of privilege, right? I'm in a technology executive <laughs> in a health tech startup. So I get that. I don't have to have multiple jobs. I do, but... That's just because I want to. Um, so yeah, it's a position of privilege, but if anyone shouldn't be suffering, it's me, right? And so that's what, that's kind of the message for me is like how much of the suffering that you're experiencing is is avoidable, right? Because we're, we're sort of just tunnel vision trying to just going along with the, the status quo um, and not just rethinking. And this is an opportunity to rethink. And I do think a lot of people are sort of rethinking their approach to kind of work in life in this moment and, and wanting and demanding more. So that makes me happy. <laughs> what's the what's what's the message then for execs in this moment? I think for execs, I really do think it's existential threat as well, because if they are leading the old way. Uh, they it is they they will have a lot of challenges um, attracting retaining talent. Uh, it's just not going to work, in my opinion. And I'm seeing that left and right, uh, and and will facilitate it as much as possible, either through hiring those people <laughs> or referring them to uh, better companies. Um, Hashtag seriously. Cheryl is hiring is trending on Twitter right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's. There's, yeah, I think it's it's an ex- existential threat. And ultimately it's like, I do, there's like, it's all rooted in the fear of dying. So, you know, maybe read Worm at the Core and, and reevaluate, you know, what your underlying value system and as if you're so yeah. afraid of your employees having a little bit of space, why? <laughs> Ask yourself why. Yeah. Because that control, that clinging, that holding on is, has the, we know, it just has the opposite effect. It causes people to want to, hightail it and fake work, right? Like they get really good at fake and work. 
<laughs> and I think you just described the Soviet Union. I mean, we <laughs> we pretend to work, they pretend to pay us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like your line that we are not washing machines. Like we're not yeah. Yeah. like yeah. we're we are entire people. So yeah. It's funny because that connects to something that uh it's I have a friend and colleague, Rachel Hands, who learns a lot about managing people and the language that, and she would tell me the language that we use to describe people accurately reflects the culture and context of those people's work. So this isn't just a change of how we work with people. This is a change of the culture around work. Uh, and I guess what I want to ask you to sort of end this is, do you see our culture of work changing? And where do you feel like the work to continue that culture change needs to happen? I do. And I think it gets back to that line, right, of we are not resources. <laughs> We are humans. And the truth too, and I've been thinking a lot about this, especially in the work I'm doing, when you think about the impact of AI and automation on work and where that's going in the future, the fact is, is that there is a lot that's going to be automatable. You know what's not going to be automatable? The human side of work, caregiving, you know, educating, these things like traditionally seen as women's work, these these things that are traditionally undervalued and underpaid and therefore under-resourced, you know, this, these are going to be the unautomatable roles in the future. And even the work that I do, like the work of technologists, going to be pretty automatable. Pretty soon the computers will be coding themselves. Yep. Um, well, thankfully I'm an executive, so that's a little different. <laughs> I don't really code anymore. <laughs> there always needs to be somebody to flip the switch. <laughs> So starting to actually value what humans yeah. bring to the table, because that is going to be the only differentiator in the future, yeah. right? In, you know, 20, 50 years is, is in our ability to code. It's going to be our ability to show up as full humans. So if we're expecting employees to show up as machines, get to work and not want to do it, then you're missing the point, frankly, yeah. in my opinion. I had a conversation once with Ayori Selassie, who I think you also know, who does a lot of yeah. work with AI. And I'm recalling that conversation because she was terrified of something she had discovered in an AI algorithm that yes, she was working that. with. And at the same time, because AIs exist in a constant learning state, you know, the implications of what you just said for something like AI is that the AI itself is going to think of humans as interchangeable when they are not. Uh, and that's, that's terrifying, actually, yeah. if you really yeah. think about what that means for automation. Yeah. Um, hey, did you want to plug your podcast before we wrap? Because Cheryl also has her own recordings. You can find them on LinkedIn. I know for sure is where I've listened to a few, but yeah, LinkedIn and YouTube. Um, primarily I've been doing stuff with Larry and I'm not going to pronounce his name right. So he is Salvador Arcus. Thank over you. At Arcus. Yes. Over at Arcus. And, and, you know, it was funny because he and I, I actually got an executive coaching certificate last year. Uh, he also does some coaching. So we got connected really through our uh, mutual relationship with Pep Up Tech and offering to do some coaching for Pep Up Tech. So uh, then um, Selena connected Larry and I. And at first I was just like, why am I being connected to the co-founder of Arcus? I don't work at Salesforce anymore. And then I met with Larry and I was like, oh, he's like my brother from another mother, you know? Um, <laughs> Larry is truly a sensitive and amazing human being, yeah. and we should all be so lucky to have more Larrys in this world. I know that for sure. Is yeah, the name of your podcast mindset. Conversations with Cheryl and Larry? Is yes. that it? Yeah, that's that it. Is it. It is out there. I also, yeah, there's in, in uh, other things that I do. I do a little bit of coaching for um, helping to diversify the 
the C-suite in tech. So I have a couple, usually have a couple of coaches going on and, and looking at some other stuff in the future I might do. So we'll see. But yeah, I always like to have something going on, you know, just trying to move, move the needle a little bit with some of these things I'm passionate about, whether it's diversifying technology. I get on a lot of CTO panels and I'm the only woman, surprise, surprise, um, or just helping, you know, folks live an amazing life as they age. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And, My pleasure. Uh, thanks for all the work that you that you still do and that you've been doing for so long. You're welcome, and thank you right back because you guys do awesome work as well. So thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Miss you guys. Miss you too, folks. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.